Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of This Month in Selsenabenment. It's that time of the month already. We are in May, and there's so much to cover this time around. But luckily, I don't have to do that by myself. As always, I am joined by the wonderful Devin McDermott. Devin, how are you today? I am wonderful. It is so awesome to be here, as always. And it's an action-packed show tonight. It's an action-packed spring. There's just so much happening in the enablement world. I'm pumped, as always, to be here. That's awesome. Well, it's great to see that you've survived Coachella, all right? Barely. You didn't go too crazy? <laughs> well, you know, I like to just lurk in my window, but the outfits got a little crazy. The people were wild. It was so exciting. And as you know, I sat on my couch in my pajamas and watched it on YouTube. So it was great. Excellent. Well, I think next year we should aim for a live episode from Coachella. So if any of the sales tech vendors are listening and they're keen to sponsor <laughs> a stage at Coachella where we broadcast live, we're here for you. So a sponsorship opportunity for this month in sales enablement. <laughs> but enough of Coachella. I think they're getting way too much airtime on the show. I think so too. <laughs> We have a action-packed agenda, as always. So we have a bunch of insights from the State of Sales Enablement podcast. We are covering a research report. We are talking about the job market. We are giving AI updates, a bit of social buzz in the mix as well, and book reviews. And you'll be happy to hear that we have tightened up our agenda and really did some planning this time around. So we are confident <laughs> that this time... We finally make those book reviews happening, and we will be talking about two books, Never Split the Difference, a negotiation bestseller, and Atomic Habits, which is a book that I have heard about previously, but I didn't really read before Devin put me onto it, and I absolutely love it. It's a little sneak peek of my opinion here. Yeah, so make sure that you stick around until the end, but we're also always curious to hear where everybody is from. So please let us know in the chat where you are dialing in from. Um, always great to see people dialing in live and always great to see some exotic locations in the mix as well. And to kick things off, I just want to touch on a couple of episodes last month on the state of sales enablement. And the first interview I want to touch on is an interview that I have run with the great Cheryl Bushek. She is an enabler that has switched back and forth between product marketing and enablement. So a really strong content focus as well, which is something that I can really strongly relate to because that was also really core to my approach always. She has built several enablement teams throughout her career. And let's take a listen to one of the things that she said throughout this interview. However your go-to-market team is structured to shepherd the customer down that journey, that's how enablement should be structured too, is to support those efforts. I want to ask you, Devin, because you have been building enablement teams for a number of startups now. What is your approach typically? Do you also focus your team structure on the structure of the go-to-market team or is there another approach that you follow? Yeah, typically that is the tried and true approach, especially when you're bringing enablement into the organization. But you know, Felix, I tend to reside in startup land. And so if I'm bringing in enablement from scratch, ground up, I always like to understand the specific goals of the organization. So is it new hire onboarding? Is it methodology rollout? Are, you know, there are new class of managers coming through that need upskilling? Are you a team of one? Is there a budget? All of those things go into the strategy for scoping out an enablement team. So usually I follow that GTM approach where we have a dedicated program manager to each of the core teams that we're setting out to support. So if we are a revenue enablement function, we have sales, account management, and so on. If you have the budget, I always like to dedicate further down if we have like a BDR manager, a sales enablement manager, and someone for your solutions engineer team. But so often in the startup world, you get to start as a team of one and you're usually expected to do everything. So I know Cheryl calls this out in the episode, which I thought was so great because I can totally relate to it. Don't try to build out a revenue enablement function when you join an organization. Start with one team, build your processes, build your best practices, start kind of curating that center of excellence with one group. And what you'll find is other teams are going to start tapping in. Your CSMs are going to want to sit on those sales sessions. They're going to want to join your gong call reviews. So I say start simply if you're a small team or a team of one, if you're working in the startup space, really lean into where the business is focusing their efforts 
and build your blueprint for the team and the enablement structure that you want to grow into. And there is no right or wrong answer, but it really depends on the organization. Excellent. Well, if you're lucky, you've got the Devin McDermott reputation and you've got a big budget to begin with, which means that you can uh, hire all the people. In my dreams, yes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Just moving on, I briefly mentioned hiring and building a team. The next enabler that I had on the show is an enabler that I seriously cannot believe is still on the job market because he is absolutely awesome. Very senior, very experienced, and generally a very cool guy. He also is a singer at a band. So if you are looking for entertainment at your next Christmas party, he might be your man too. <laughs> but only if you hire him as an enablement leader. Jonathan Carford, he has launched several larger scale coaching programs in the past. And this is what he had to say on the podcast. To me, I think half of being good at coaching is accountability, both for the coach and for the person. If all you did was keep track of weekly goals and that's all you did and you were a crappy coach, you'd do okay. <laughs> Just because that accountability partner does so much by itself. So there was Jonathan talking about launching larger scale or scalable coaching programs, shared lots of great tips and the example of one business that he rolled a coaching program out with. What's been your experience, Devin, in terms of the sophistication of coaching within the businesses that you have joined in the past? And have you launched a scalable coaching program in the past? Yeah, I think, again, looking at it through the lens of the startup space, I feel like coaching is always the thing that kind of gets pushed to the side. We have a new initiative, new things, new talk tracks, new everything. And when do we have time to coach? Because everything's changing. So something that we've tried to do and I've tried to do in my enablement strategy historically is baking in those coaching moments into the program. So things that are as simple as a coaching guide for managers, things to look out for, but working with leadership along the way to carve out that dedicated time and space for coaching. I think there's still a mindset with a lot of folks like, hey, our team, we've been here for a while. We got a lot of senior reps. They're good. Don't worry about those guys. And so that mindset obviously like is not a growth mindset, is not a coaching mindset, but it can often be hard to shift. And so how I like to introduce it to a new business or even to a younger sales organization is via some of those enablement initiatives. So it just becomes part of the package. Managers have their role to play. Team members have their role to play. And we guide them best practices for coaching, you know, casually using the grow framework and things like that. Just very simple ways to get our team members and our managers thinking in the spirit of coaching, growing skills, building our teams. I think also being able to align things back to those competency skills and behaviors makes coaching a little bit more tangible for folks as well. Again, in the startup world, that can often be challenging. People hear the word competencies, they get really nervous. It feels very complicated. So there's an analogy that I like to use. I may have used it on our show before, Felix, but it's the spinach and the brownie analogy, meaning there's things that people have an allergic reaction to. There's a cookbook where this woman wanted her kid to eat more veggies. So she hid spinach and other really healthy food inside of delicious food, like brownies and cakes. The kids ate it. They loved it. So when I'm introducing casual coaching into our programs, I'll embed it in what we're doing. But I haven't had the ability to build a full-scale kind of org-wide coaching program. So that is actually something I'm working on with my team over the next few weeks because managers and their involvement in enablement and coaching and enforcement, they're the linchpin. They make everything work. They grow our teams. And they're really the secret sauce to growing our, our business. So work to be done, but I'm a huge fan of coaching and loved this episode. Yeah, excellent. Now, I think if there's a readiness from the organization to have some sort of coaching program, that's already half the battle from my experience, because yeah, from my experience, there are still a lot of organizations out there that assume that enablement covers coaching, <laughs> which is obviously right. hard, right? And I think the book that we'll be talking about later on, Atomic Habits, also plays into that. Yes. Coaching is not a single point in time that fixes an issue immediately. It's a ongoing effort that allows reps to gradually improve and then hopefully experience a breakthrough moment that then solves certain challenges for them. So yeah, very interesting episode for anybody who is interested in introducing a more sophisticated and scalable coaching program for their organization. So the last episode I want to touch on is a episode that I have recorded with Amy Robertson. I had a great conversation with her around enablement charters. Let's take a listen on what she had to say. 
To me, if you break it down to its most basic intention, a charter is your plan. It is your plan for how you're going to move ahead with enablement, whether it's a new discipline or if you're evolving it. And the intent is also to bring everybody along with you so they understand where they participate, where they play, where they're accountable, so that you can be successful on the other side. Something that Amy touches on here is the alignment component, which is, from my point of view, something that is really is always mentioned, but is, I think, in some cases underappreciated, because to me, that's almost 90% of the reason I have developed charters in, in the past. It's just simply to have an excuse to sit everybody on a table and have those discussions around what enablement should be looking for, how everybody contributes. You know, the document is basically a tool and an excuse to lead those conversations. And then after that, obviously, it's about ongoing updates and really keeping it up to date and using it as a reference point. But I'm curious to hear from you, Devin, the update component is something that is still not clear oftentimes when I speak to enablers. And how do you typically go about updating enablement charters? Do you have like a, a scheduled review meeting with all your stakeholders? Or is that something that just happens ad hoc when updates are required? I think it depends. I try to make sure that for our broader like enablement team charter that we are revisiting that at least quarterly and gut checking with let's say my direct manager and some of my direct stakeholders in our one-on-one -on -one meetings. It's not a formal like, you know, we're not mutual action planning and pulling it up and blocking and tackling along the way, but we do revisit and recalibrate for our team specific charters. So I my team is oriented to specific programs, so sales, account management and so on. We revisit that monthly. We're in a startup organization. Our business is changing quickly. We are getting slammed with random acts of enablement, as you can imagine, right? It's, oh, just a talk track, just an update. So that's when we pull up the charter. And so it's at least a monthly revisit with our senior leader on the team, but also the team leads where necessary to say, okay, we agreed upon this. These are the metrics we want to impact. This is what we're building. What goes away? And if you really want to drive change with this talk track, drive that adoption, get your folks doing things a new way, then it gets added to the list and we can recalibrate and reprioritize, but not everything can stay here. It's become such a powerful tool for my team, even just to show up as strategic partners to the leaders that they're working with. I don't want to or need to be in all of those meetings because I know they are running a strategic conversation that is hyper-aligned and hyper-focused on what our organization needs to achieve. So I used to think the charters were kind of like, oh yeah, let me do my charter, no big deal. It's become one of the most valuable tools in my toolkit. I've changed them over the years, but I'm a huge fan. And again, it can be very powerful. If you are in a large organization that moves a little bit more slowly with a little bit more predictability, you can certainly insert those touch points along probably a few times per quarter. And then again, recalibrating at the start of each new quarter. But there is no, in my opinion, hard and fast rule. I think, again, use your charter. It is your secret weapon to drive alignment, to combat those random acts of enablement, and to really show up as a trusted partner for your leadership team and your stakeholders. Yeah, that's great. I think that is also my preferred approach the pragmatic approach to updating the charter when something comes up. I think scheduling updates is something that I have heard from some enablers that that's their approach. But my typical experience is that it's just being seen as administrative overhead and just consumes too much time from everybody involved. It just depends on the type of organization, I guess. You know, as you said, yeah. large organizations might have a greater tolerance for that. But yeah, typically my, my approach would also be the more pragmatic one. Yeah. And keep it simple. Like I used to create these charters that had all of the detail and information and nobody cared. I was getting blank stares. So like, what's your executive summary charter? What's going to get your leadership team excited? What's going to get them looking through it and saying, oh, let's move this. Let's recalibrate. So find the right method and mechanism to communicate with your stakeholders based on who they are, what they care about, how they communicate. Again, it becomes a really powerful tool instead of a PowerPoint that's collecting dust. That brings us to the end of this inside segment from the State of Sales Enablement podcast. We have a monthly newsletter that covers all of the resources that we cover in our discussion. So you receive all the links, um, all the insights associated with those links. If you haven't subscribed already, just make sure to subscribe. Moving along, the next item on the agenda is the research reports. And there is a research that says being funny can pay off more for women than men. I'm very curious, Devin, what is that one all about? 
It sure can. You know I love a research report. So this is a report from HBR, and it challenges the stereotype and preconceived notion that women aren't funny. And they do it through very fascinating research. So the authors of this report conducted two different studies that were focused on presentations in two very different environments. So the first part of the study looked at audience reactions to over 2,400 TED and TEDx talks on a variety of topics. Those were delivered on demand and live, so a number of different ways for the content to have been shared. And the second part of the study was conducted to see if the same findings spanned beyond the stage to the boardroom. So this one was measuring investor interest, responses, and independent evaluations for over 200 startup pitches. So here's what they learned. In the TED and TEDx part of the study, female speakers who used humor were more popular and perceived as more influential than both comparatively funny men and less funny women, regardless of the topic they covered, the size of the event, where it happened, and so on. The second part of the study, which is this like entrepreneurial setting, had female founders deliver their startup pitches. And the pitches that were scored less humorous were less likely to win than their equally unfunny male counterparts. But pitches that were perceived as funnier were equally likely to win. So what do these findings illustrate? Well, they show that women are held to a very different standard when it comes to influence and likability. And the data here suggests that Humor has the ability to break something called the warmth competence double bind. I think probably most women on this call and probably a number of men know what that is. And this is something that hinders women from exerting influence in professional settings. So what this warmth competence double bind says is that women are expected to be warm, soft, likable, and non-threatening. And if they're not, they are seen as assertive. But the catch is when women come across as non-threatening, they're also perceived as less competent. So we're expected to be soft, sweet, calm, and then people think we are not as competent. So defying gender stereotypes related to agency can have surprising effects on how women are perceived. And research suggests that women often face backlash for challenging stereotypes of female dominance, which again, we see play out in memes and in, in articles everywhere. But Studies are showing that when women defy stereotypes related to intelligence and confidence using humor, they are actually perceived favorably. This is because, and there's a ton of research beyond this article that backs it, but people view funny coworkers and leaders, regardless of gender, as competent and self-assured. So humor is something that can certainly be used to bridge the gap for women in this situation. It is very important to note, and the research report goes into great detail on this, that humor is not a magic solution. And depending on the context you're in, it might not be effective or appropriate. And again, I think we all know certain types of humor are not good in any situation, but humor can be used as a tool in a communication toolbox for a leader. But this research underscores the power of humor in combating bias against women and helping them thrive in public arenas. Again, there is no recipe, but female presenters using humor can challenge this women aren't funny stereotype, can challenge this stereotype that they are not as competent or diligent as their peers. And it's a really interesting idea to think about. So again, the type of humor that women used in certain situations was received differently. There's layers and layers to this, but it's quite interesting to see that there are mechanisms and tools that women and other folks can use to be who they are, be seen as the competent, confident person they are, and not have to change who they are in certain environments. So quite interesting, but using humor in a way that feels natural to you to project warmth and confidence, super effective. Definitely take a look at this report and you'll find yourself Googling and finding all the other research reports out there that support this study. So really interesting one. Excellent. So do you use uh, humor in your communication with senior management? Unintentionally. And sometimes <laughs> it does not go over well. So I think for me, I like to have fun. And if I'm not having fun at work and in my life, then what is the point? And so I think humor sometimes just comes through in some of those conversations. And it definitely, I've seen it work against me, as the article says, like there are some situations where it is not time to be humorous or funny. And so I'm trying to find the balance, but I do. And for the most part, it has served me well. Definitely some lessons learned. Yeah, absolutely. No, I find for me, it has always worked best 
if I have been communicating with the sales team. Yes. <laughs> just simply because of some of those settings, when sellers don't really want to be in those sort of settings, whether it's training or any sort of updates or sales meetings, yeah. inserting humor into the session really makes them appreciate that you're making an effort and also makes them feel like it's just a fun activity rather than a chore. So I think in those settings, it has worked best for me. And then with senior management, I always have to suss out with the people in the room are. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think you have to earn your credibility first before you can then sidestep and be a bit silly. Yeah. If you try too hard to be humorous in the very beginning, it can be seen as you cannot be taken seriously. Yes. So next up, we wanted to talk about the SEC Vegas event that is coming up. What is that one all about? Yes. In 15 seconds or less, I am going to be in Vegas next week for the SEC Enablement Conference. I'm so pumped. I'm going to be part of a fireside chat with some other startup enablers, Brian Grobstein and Jocelle Sarempa. So excited to partner with them. We're going to be talking through navigating challenges that can derail startup enablement success. And there are so many other awesome sessions, an AMA with Siobhan, a metrics deep dive with Cheryl. So I feel like I'm going to get the follow-up to the podcast. There's an onboarding session, a collateral session with Gen G. It's going to be fantastic. I'm so pumped to be there and to meet everyone. And if you're going to be in Vegas, let me know. Would love to meet up with my other enablement friends. That's awesome. Well, I saw the post by Paul Butterfield who had yes. some spare tickets to give away. And I think when I saw the lineup, of the people that he mentioned, you included. I think that was the very first time I had serious FOMO. So everybody who's got the <laughs> chance to go, please make sure you attend and just do it for me, please. Do it for me. <laughs> we'll live stream it. I'll get a TikTok account just to... <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> That'd be awesome if you could dial me in. I would love to catch up with some people. That would be great. <laughs> Moving along, the next item on the agenda is the job market update. Stephanie Zarabian can't make it today, unfortunately, because she's also attending a conference. But for anybody not familiar with Stephanie's job boards, what are you doing? This is the best resource ever. Get on it. <laughs> Please support her. She spends hours and hours pulling this together. So lots of great jobs out there. She organizes it by remote, hybrid, and on-site, so you can really see what sort of arrangement might be relevant or suitable to you. And then she also always posts the hiring manager, which is also a great way to start a conversation around a potential job. So please make sure to visit Stephanie Zarabian's job board, drop her a like and follow her as well. I also wanted to take this job board just quickly as an excuse to do a shout out to a few people that have previously joined the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement, a learning experience, which is a course that I am running together with Mike Kunkel, the author of the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. And I want to just give a brief shout out to uh, Tatiana Bertina from the Ukraine, Alexandra Audi from Denmark, Alyssa Carroll, Shannon Salas, Cheryl Bushek, and Jean Eckhoff. And all these people have either found jobs while being members of the course or have scored promotions. I really appreciate you guys, really impressed by the amount of effort that you have put in and your dedication to really honing your craft. And some of those guys that I just listed are extremely experienced enablers as well. And I'm always impressed by people that have that growth mindset and that are really committed to learning, even though they have already had great experiences and have already seen a lot of things and have already implemented large-scale programs. So I just wanted to do a quick shout-out saying that I appreciate all of you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for being part of it. The next article that we have in the list is the AI update, which is around the godfather of AI that left Google and warns of the dangers of AI. Devin, what's that one all about? I don't know if everybody's ready for this one. So <laughs> I think we know. AI is starting to feel more and more like a hot trendy topic these days, but a topic that I think people are getting sick of. It makes me think of the, you know, home design and people using shiplap and gray floors and live, laugh, love, word art. I might have some of those trends in my home. But one thing I know to be true, AI isn't going anywhere and it is not a trend. It is literally part of everything we do. 
There was even a story yesterday, I think it was on LinkedIn, about how some VCs were going so wild for AI startups that many of the businesses they were investing in didn't even have business plans. They were just investing because they wanted to get on the AI train so desperately that they're just like, frigate, let's see what happens. But the sentiment around the positive impact of AI is changing too, which brings us to this article about our friend Jeffrey Hinton. So for half a century, Jeffrey Hinton nurtured the technology at the heart of chatbots like ChatGPT, and now Jeffrey is worried that it's going to have the power to cause serious harm. So let me be clear. If Jeff is worried, I am worried, but it's going to be okay. So Jeffrey Hinton is known as the godfather of AI, and he recently left his role at Google, which he cited some concerns about the ethical considerations and potential risks associated with the rapid advancement of AI technologies. So he's been talking a lot about responsible practices, transparency, and accountability in the AI industry. And his departure from Google really emphasizes how important it is to address the challenges and dangers of AI development without properly monitoring and putting some sort of regulation in place. So he said that we really need ethical guidelines and responsible innovation in this field. And while he was at Google, he saw how AI has the potential to transform various industries in a very positive way. And I think myself and, and most of the folks probably started using AI and using ChatGPT and Zapier and all sorts of things that are just becoming part of our day to day. But Hinton also recognized the downsides like biases and algorithms, concerns about data privacy, and the threat of autonomous weapons. All of these things led Hinton to believe that we need to take urgent action to reduce the risks associated with unregulated AI development. But he left Google. He has not forsaken us. He plans to use his time and expertise to raise awareness about the challenges and potential dangers of AI. And he's going to be doing the work. He's going to be sitting down with researchers, policymakers, industry leaders, all to promote responsible AI development and make sure that it aligns with human values and the overall well-being of society. So there's that. But concerns in AI they span basically every industry. And so the lack of regulations and, you know, the potential of, of what could happen is surfacing up in places like TV and film. And this is calling into question the ethics of using actors, voices and likenesses in future projects they might have never been a part of. I've seen this in the training world as well. So I used to use a tool called Descript, which is really cool. It allows you to record real human voices and then use those voices in anything you'd like. And so we had to sign, you know, create an agreement for folks that were recording their voices at our company that if they left, we wouldn't keep using their voice or their likeness. And so that was a few years ago at this point. But an actor called uh, Justine Bateman who was in an amazing show called Family Ties in the 1980s, she's been super vocal about this, saying, you know, the reality is, for actors especially, their past work, their likeness, scripts, films, all of this is captured and can be used to create new content that no one has approved, no one is benefiting from. People have created sequels to movies, and no one has created a new season of The Golden Girls, but I'm waiting for that. But it's really interesting to consider the power and impact of this technology across literally every single industry. As for Hinton, again, he's here. He's sharing updates about, I think a week ago, he predicted that it was only going to be five to 20 years for AI to surpass human intelligence. As for Felix and I, we'll be here as well. We're going to stay on top of trends in the AI space in general and for enablement until it maybe goes the way of the live, laugh, love sign. I don't think it will, Felix, but how are you feeling about all of this? Or I know you are a resident AI expert. I do agree. One of the articles that I previously shared, which I believe is a great resource if you want to understand the big picture, which is the AI article from the blog Wait But Why, which explains the big picture of AI. What that article, which is a small book almost, that's how long the article is, explains is that the danger of AI is that we won't see the point coming where it's actually smarter than a human because it starts out being as smart as a mouse, then it's as smart as a cat, then it's as smart as a dog, and then suddenly it's as smart as a dumb human, as he says. <laughs> From there, it's then smarter than all humans combined, right? So it's basically like a bullet train that will go past us and we won't even see it coming when it's suddenly smarter than, than we are. Yeah. I think if you consider the way that... 
AI automates learning and the system teaches itself. And it's just based on the amount of data being fed into it and the training it receives. I think the danger is real and we really have to be careful with allowing it to solve problems by itself, because that's really where the danger is, because that's when the ethical considerations of what is appropriate to solve a certain problem really come into play. So for example, you want to achieve a goal and whether to achieve that goal, it's appropriate to kill humans. The AI might think that's no problem at all, you know, whereas a human wouldn't even think about that. So I think that is just one consideration. I think from a self perspective, the AI side of things, currently the biggest use case that I can see is just from a content creation point of view and also using it as a co-pilot to support sellers in their interactions with buyers. And I also briefly want to shout out the comment that Carl has left here. He said that I'd like to ask what your thoughts are around B2B sales. I'm seeing a lot of reports that don't want salespeople involved in the sale. Huh. So I think what you're referring to here is the buyers that say they don't want the seller to be involved. So yes, there's a lot of data around that. I think the main notion of those sort of reports are around buyers not wanting the sellers to be the sole source of information. They just want to self-serve and want to have access to the information when it is needed. And I think that's also where AI can offer the most value. If AI is trained on your products, on your solution, in the context of certain situations of a buyer and the buyer profile is clear to the AI, the AI can then answer questions and refer to resources when the seller is not available right then, right now. So it's basically still the second best option, but it's a very good option to fulfill information needs from my point of view. So those are my two cents. I fully agree. We need to be careful with AI, but for now, it seems to me more playful yes. and more fun than danger. So let's enjoy it while we can. Certainly a trend to keep an eye on. Now, the next article we want to cover is about SaaS and a report that was talking about SaaS usage and a really fun article or written in a fun way, but the implications of the article are not that fun because it states that there's a lot of wastage going on when it comes to purchasing SaaS. And I don't want to encourage anybody to cut their SaaS spend, of course, because it always depends on your respective situation and what sort of solutions you are trying to address. One of the quotes here in this article that is called Breeding Like Rabbits, business blows millions on unused SaaS software, vendors reselling customer IP to competitors, discounts missed as business units are picked off individually. The quote that I want to call out here is, if John Wanamaker was alive today, he'd be saying half the money I spent on software as a service is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. So for anybody not familiar with that quote, the original quote is half the money I spent on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. And what this article really points out here, which is referencing a research piece by a vendor that is allowing companies to monitor the usage of SaaS products and creates transparency around that. So you always have to take those reports, obviously, with a grain of salt, just simply because you have to see the intention behind the insights generated by the reports, which is obviously from that vendor's point of view to point out the dangers of overspending on SaaS. But nonetheless, quite interesting insights here. So what they're calling out here is that companies are paying for a significant number of unused SaaS licenses with under 25% utilization for applications like ServiceNow and Asana. So those were two platforms that they have specifically called out there that are not very well utilized. Ideally, businesses should aim for a 90 to 95% utilization rate for core applications. So from my point of view, this really depends. I think there's all kinds of different software platforms out there. From an Asana point of view, there's obviously also integrations that can then send out email notifications to the respective people. In general, it is a project management software, so you always have to see who is actually managing the projects in there. So to be taken with a grain of salt, but interesting nonetheless. Integrating SaaS into a broader enterprise tech infrastructure can cost eight to 10 times more than the SaaS software itself. SaaS is becoming a substantial operating cost ranking second to staff expenses in some large organization. 
insufficient training for employees to utilize SaaS solutions effectively contributes to underutilization. And brands are missing opportunities for significant discounts as vendors target individual business units to increase their market share. And the common solution to the complex and costly integration challenge is often to add more SaaS, perpetuating the cycle. So those were some of the key insights here. But what that means for enablers, from my point of view, I think it's always worthwhile reviewing the effectiveness and utilization of your enablement stack, especially if you start a new role and you have not been responsible for sourcing the SaaS platforms. Yes, I am aware that a lot of times RevOps or SalesOps are responsible for the actual sourcing, but oftentimes, nonetheless, it eats into the enablement budget. So worthwhile reviewing for sure. It's also worthwhile to create a digital adoption plan for platforms that are effective yet underutilized. So for those of you that are not familiar, so Stephanie Zorabian has a really strong digital adoption background, and she's also run a podcast specifically focused on that topic in the past. So those sort of roles are a luxury from my point of view, not always available, especially in smaller businesses. So if you can, and if you really want to increase the usage, a digital adoption plan can really make sense. And then obviously the ultimate decision that has to be made if you find that there's an underutilization of platforms that don't really add a lot of value, then it makes sense from our point of view to really reduce the amount of seeds or cancel the pan completely. I also think if you are an enabler in SaaS, it can be worthwhile to consider those insights in and sharing this knowledge with the product marketing team, for example, and working with them and identifying opportunities for product messaging adjustments to really bring home that point, how much you care about making a digital adoption a focus for your SaaS platform and really how you ensure the maximization of those platforms just simply because this topic seems to be more and more on the agenda of enablers, specifically in the current market environment where so many teams are forced to cut their costs. Devin, what's your experience? Do you currently uh, have to cut your costs from a SaaS point of view? I think I know the answer, but I ask you anyway. Yes, <laughs> we certainly did. And we had to get a lot smarter and more thoughtful about our tech stack. And I personally am a fan of like a light tech stack and an incredibly robust strategy. So you mentioned this, like what is the adoption strategy for this? But is our tech stack launched with a strategy and an adoption plan, expectations, reinforcement? Is our tech built into our enablement efforts? All of that is incredibly important. But like so many other things, it's like, all right, we got to get this thing live. Great. Let's move on. What's next? And you kind of forget about it and hope everybody's using it. So it's really important if you can to take the time to build that strategy. I'm launching a CMS right now. So we spent weeks on our content strategy, building the infrastructure, launching it. And now we're going to take our time to really ensure our teams understand how to use it, to ensure that we built the right system for them. A lot of these systems as well require dedicated ownership. And if you don't have that, the systems can fall to the wayside. The strategy can get stale. Your content, your content management system might not be refreshed. So all of these are things to consider as you reevaluate your tech stack. Do you really need all of those add-ons and all those other elements? Do you have the core tech stack you need with a really tight strategy that's going to serve your team? So often, and we've seen this as we've recalibrated our tech stack, so much of what we have is a Band-Aid, to your point. You buy one thing to fix another thing, to connect it to something else. You don't have to do that. But I wish it was that easy. So there are a couple of things that we wanted to talk about in regards to the latest social bus. We will save for next time. We really wanted to make sure this time that we cover the book reviews that we have in the pipeline. So let's do that. And the first book we want to talk about is Atomic Habits which Devin is reviewing. So Devin, what's Atomic Habits all about and why does it matter to enablers? Oh, it matters. And if you're on my team, most of you are not, I can't stop talking about this book. So the concept is, what would change in your world if you work to get 1% better at something every day? Well, if you focus on moving that needle by 1%, you can make an epic task, project, goal, or life change feel less daunting, and way more achievable. So 
Atomic Habits is by James Clear. It's a solid read for anybody looking to understand the mechanisms that actually drive change and drive habit change in people. It offers a very practical approach and practical advice and guidance for how to cultivate and stack habits to incrementally improve. Then this can be applied to yourself, your team, or even your organization to deliver very thoughtful change management initiatives. But for me, Atomic Habits got me thinking about how people's brains work and why certain approaches to habit change don't work. So I'm going to give you the TLDR on Atomic Habits first, and don't get nervous with this one. Goals equal bad. And I'll tell you why in a second. Habits are things that are built into our identities, and our identities are sort of like a firewall, allowing us to make up a lot of excuses for why we can't do something or achieve something or change a behavior. And therefore, we must challenge ourselves to reframe who we are to set ourselves up for success. And as I started reading this book, so I have the hard copy because it's awesome, recommend it, but I love an audiobook. So I'm listening to the book and I'm like, that's me. I do that. Oh my gosh. So I say to myself a lot, oh, I'm just not good at X or I can't do Y. And I make a lot of blanket statements and excuses about what I can and can't do and, and who I think I am. I am this type of person or that type of person. And for me, here's a great example. I always said, I'm Devin and I'm bad at math. And that's it. There's no way around it. <laughs> me too. Oh my gosh. Well, we're going to talk about this, Felix. But I literally like, I think about the hours that I spent with my math tutor at my parents' kitchen table. I was crying. At one point, he was crying. And we just needed to get to the New York State Regents exam and get a 65 score, which we did. It took months. But the thing is, so here's what I learned. And Felix, this is for you as well. I'm not bad at math. Despite believing I was that person for so long, I never really knew how to take the right steps to build those skills. I just said, I failed at this thing. I'm bad at it. I'll never be good at it. So we can do a therapy session about my math trauma at another time. But Atomic Habits reframes how we should look at ourselves, and it unlocks the process for breaking change management initiatives into smaller chunks. And habits are so much easier to cultivate if you do them in smaller chunks. Like again, thinking about those 1% improvements. So throughout the book, Clear emphasizes the importance of focusing on the process of habit formation rather than fixating on outcomes. So that's why we said goals are bad because that's the outcome, right? We need to talk about what are the steps we need to take to achieve that thing. He also stresses the value of tracking progress, making adjustments as needed to stay on track. Like you might not be following the same course when you're halfway through your change management initiative, right? He also shares some best practices for integrating new habits into already formed routines, which makes it a lot easier to adopt something new. And this is a great technique or rather tool for enablers to think about as you start to drive and layer change management efforts across your teams. So overall, Atomic Habits, it provides practical, actionable guides to developing habits that readers can actually use to achieve their goals. And I think maybe lead more fulfilling lives, but it breaks down the science of habit formation into very simple, understandable steps. And Clear offers a really nice roadmap for personal transformation that I found to be very inspiring and also very achievable. So I got my notebook out as soon as I finished the book. I started documenting my change management initiatives, the habits that I want to form. And as I mentioned, also talking to my team endlessly about it. But Five stars for Atomic Habits. As I said, the physical copy is worth owning. The audiobook was great and really fun to listen to. And the Atomic Habits website has awesome resources for success. I love a template. I love a workbook. They have it all. And to your question, Felix, for all of the enablers out there, this book is worth a spot on your bookshelf. Check it out. So good. Could not agree more. I read it and applied it immediately. And yeah, it's amazing. I think. This is the best self-help book that I've ever come across. I heard about it before, but I kind of heard about the premise, okay, you slowly get better and ongoing effort breeds big changes over time. I was like, okay, I got the gist of it. But when I then actually read it after your recommendation, it is so much more than that because it really offers those psychological insights that lead to you sticking with habits and what it means to actually adopting habits and what makes it more likely for you to adopt habits. And I've personally used it over the last probably three to four weeks. And it's been amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, I've been exercising more. I've been eating better. I've been sleeping better. So 
I don't think I have ever come across a book like that that in such a short amount of time had such a big impact on me. So yeah. cannot agree more with your comments. Absolutely love it. And I think a lot of the notion of adopting and creating habits can also be used in working with sales teams. Big time. So basically, when we talk about coaching, training, and really having incremental gains and you know improving 1% every day, that sort of mindset can easily be applied to your work in enablement. And I think there's a big opportunity to adopt those principles in your work as enablers as well. Yes. Just another book I have read last month, which is Never Split the Difference, which is a book that is all about negotiation. And that one is a really interesting one, just simply because from my experience, negotiation is, especially in a sales context, often an afterthought. And Everybody, in terms of methodology, always focuses on the front end, so the qualification and those earlier client interactions are really always a focus. And yes, that is important, but it is not an end-to-end methodology, of course. And I think from a negotiation point of view, what I often see in sales teams is that when it comes to negotiation, people fall into the same habits over and over again, which is just bargaining and trying to get to a yes as quickly as possible, to close the deal as quickly as possible. And the interesting thing about this book is that the author, Chris Voss, which is a former lead FBI hostage negotiator, really outlines different approaches. And he was initially, early on in his career, exposed to the more academical approach to negotiation, which was all about compromising, splitting the difference, and trying to compromise with your negotiation partner, whereas his approach is really different and it's more about maximizing the value for yourself in the negotiation while still maintaining a good relationship with your negotiation partner. So I think this book is really something that I would highly recommend anybody who does not think they're really good at negotiating yet should be looking into. And I think also if you're an enabler and you are seeking to improve the conversion rates for the negotiation stage of your sales process. This is also something that can add value if you follow a DYI approach and you are looking to formalize a methodology focused on that stage. And just to share some more examples of some of the principles that he shares as part of this book, he says empathy is the most important negotiation skill. So it's really important to actually understand the agenda and the world of your negotiation partner, labeling. It's really important to verbalize the other party's emotions and fears to validate it or clarify it and also to diffuse situations by having an objective view on what is going on here from an emotional point of view. It sounds like you are concerned about such and such as one of those phrases that are being used in there. Creating the illusion of control is another one. So Allowing the other party to feel they are in control, to increase their comfort level and their ability to make decisions that benefit your negotiation goals. Also influencing the other party's perception of reality, meaning what is attainable or realistic as part of the negotiation. Those are some of the things that he mentions. There's so much more in the book. Highly entertaining because he also talks about those hostage negotiation situations in his career. But then at the same time, he also refers to situations in his private life and also scenarios and case studies of some of the people that he works with as part of his business, which also include a lot of people that operate in a corporate environment. So it's not just all about the hostage negotiation side of things, but entertaining part nonetheless. And yeah, I highly recommend looking into this book for the reasons that I mentioned earlier. So if you want to get better at negotiating yourself, or if you want to adopt some of those principles for your sales team, this is really something that I can recommend looking into. Five stars also from me. I started consuming so many books recently because I started doing audiobooks more and more <laughs> that I am literally only sharing the best of the best here. So you can be sure that moving forward, any book that I share will be five out of five stars. Devin, we are running out of time for this episode, but just to wrap things off, we also always try to share a couple of downtime resources that you can look into if you are not enabling your sales team. So Devin, what's your recommendation for this month? 
It's going to be pretty obvious. I think everybody should read Atomic Habits because it's so, again, it just shifts your mindset and gets you moving towards that 1% improvement anywhere in your life. My other tip is playlists for productivity. So I am a former, as you know, college radio DJ. So I love a playlist and I love a mixtape, but I have been making playlists for productivity. So based on like, if I have a heads down project I'm working on, I'll customize a playlist for myself. It's really fun. It gets me motivated. It inspires little dance breaks throughout the day, which is very healthy for you. So highly recommend it. And if you are an Enneagram person, I think I'm saying that the right way. I just did this exercise with my team someone has curated playlists for every single Enneagram type and they're wild. So I would definitely check that out, have a little fun by yourself or with your team. But that's what I've been doing for relaxation and calm. What about you, Felix? Well, I've got three recommendations. One of the things and that really goes to show what sort of impact this book had on me in line with some of the principles that Atomic Habits talks about, which was the power of anticipating reward, which can sometimes be more powerful than the reward itself. So if you're really looking forward to something that can be really satisfying and something that has a lot of value. And for anybody who hasn't had a holiday recently and just wants to treat themselves, what I can recommend is just go on YouTube and search for top things to do at and then the destination you want to go to. And I've recently done that. I had a friend from Dubai visit me here in Australia recently. I knew that he was living there and I heard the occasional anecdotes from him, but I was really never that keen to go. But I recently looked at Dubai as a destination with exactly that on YouTube, and I am really fired up to go there. And this is something that I'm really looking forward to. So anybody who wants to treat themselves and utilize the power of anticipating reward, do that. The second thing I want to recommend is try audiobooks if you haven't really gotten into them already. For me, it's been an absolute game changer. You can multitask, you know, for example, if I do housework in and around the house, always listen to them. Also based on Atomic Habits, I started going for walks every morning. So I get my half an hour of audiobooks in at the same time. So last month, just to give you an example, I have listened to eight audiobooks. Oh my gosh. This is something that I would never <laughs> that I would never ever do if I sat down and actually read a physical copy. So for me it's been an absolute game changer. If you haven't tried audiobooks, try them. Absolutely recommend it. And then last but not least, tune into the NBA playoffs or if you are in America, go to your local bar to soak up the atmosphere especially if you're based in LA, Denver, Boston, or Miami, which are the only teams left in the playoffs. NBA playoffs are so much fun. I think it's a very accessible sport. So even people who don't typically watch basketball, I think it is a treat to really soak up the atmosphere and really get into it. So try to tune in if you get a chance. That brings us to the end of this month in Sales Enablement May edition. Thank you so much, everybody, for dialing in once again. And thank you, Devin, for joining after your Coachella extravaganza. <laughs> I am looking forward to catching up with everybody in June. Stay safe and make an impact with enablement. I'll speak to you later. Bye-bye.